Hi, this is Damien from New City, Orlando. You're listening to our CBR Bible Project series, where each episode we introduce a different book of the Bible as it coincides with CBR. To learn more about community Bible reading or CBR, visit newcityorlando.com forward slash CBR. Hey, New City, this is Nate Claiborne, and I'm here today with Benjamin Kant, and we're going to be talking about the Gospel of John. It's good to be with you today. Yeah, Nate, I'm looking forward to this. This is my favorite gospel. Oh, perfect. I don't know if you're allowed to have favorites like kids and whatnot, but I really love the gospel of John. I, I would have to concede it's probably my favorite gospel as well. And to, it feels bad picking a favorite gospel. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I feel like we, we have four for a reason. Uh, one of, Just jumping into it, one of the things that we should talk about is the uniqueness of John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from historical data, it's probably almost certainly the last gospel written. So it would beg the question of, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke already in existence, why do we need John's take on Jesus's life? Um, Some of that maybe is tied up in the idea that if it is John, the beloved disciple, we're talking about Jesus's best friend Mm -hmm. is probably one of the more qualified people to write a story of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's also writing maybe in some cases a couple decades after the last gospel had been written. So there's some more... theological reflection on who Mm -hmm. Jesus is, but we still have a really, it is a historical account. It's not just this cosmic Christology, Mm -hmm. we might want to say, although you get that in the first chapter of in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And we kind of are getting a new Genesis all of a sudden. Which what I hear you saying is people will often talk about John as this kind of like heavenly gospel that's just so abstract and, and in the clouds and whereas Matthew, Mark and Luke are kind of earthy and you know Jesus and ministry and on the ground kind of mm-hmm. thing about Jesus' humanity and, G- and John is really about his divinity and yeah. and you're saying no not exactly so it's just not as it's not as neat but one of, so one of the things I'm going to read a quote from a we've recommended this book before but it's a concise guide to reading the New Testament um, and the author points out um, just to get us started talking about what's unique about John. Mm-hmm. It says, imagine for a moment that John was our only gospel. And then he lists off, here's all the things we wouldn't really know about Jesus. So he says, we would have no story of his birth. We wouldn't know his mother's name was Mary. We'd have no account of his baptism or his temptation in the Judean wilderness. Uh, there's no scene of a glorious transfer- transfiguration before Peter, James, and John. Jesus never eats with tax collectors and sinners in John, and not a single exorcism is described. Mm. He clearly has 12 disciples, but they're never enumerated or listed by names. In Jesus's final hours, there is a last meal with the disciples in John, but the last supper words that institute a new covenant are entirely absent. Jesus goes to a garden, but it's not named Gethsemane, but displays no agonizing distress as he awaits his arrest. Instead, rather... Rather than pray that the cup of his suffering be taken away, as he does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus responds incredulously to those who would defend him, saying, Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? John eighteen eleven. In like manner, Jesus never falters while carrying his cross, so no one's forced to help him. He doesn't appear to suffer on the cross and does not cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taken as a whole, it seems plain that John's gospel is not in the canon primarily to provide us with additional biographical details of Jesus' life. So 
it's doing something else clearly. What do we, mm-hmm. what do we think it's doing if it's not doing all those kind mm-hmm. of traditional things you associate with the story of Jesus? So everything you just read were things that we would miss if we only had John's gospel. Right. Wow. So that's all uh, already, by the time John wrote his gospel, those three gospels were already written probably circulated, probably known, probably reflected on by John himself. Mm-hmm. And so he knew when he wrote his gospel, he didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. So he could do something different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mm-hmm. which there's often talked about. There's the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which have a lot of overlap. Whereas then and then there's the, the fourth gospel, which is John's, which is separate from the synoptics. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe this is part of what it is, is John, John's more mature theological reflection as the beloved disciple. Yeah. Canonically too, we could say it functions as a kind of interlude in some ways, because you would expect Luke and Acts Mm -hmm. written by the same author and very clearly part one and part two. It actually bothers me that those aren't together. (laughs) To be, to be back to back. You're like, you know, all of Paul's epistles are clustered together. Why Mm -hmm. isn't Luke's writings? And in some ways, John functions in the canon of scripture to prepare us for what happens in Acts. Mm -hmm. So it gives us a little more theological context for who Jesus is, what his heavenly mission is. And then when you see part two of Luke's story, you're you're looking at it through different lenses than if it just went part one, part two. Although Mm -hmm. I agree, I would prefer Luke and Acts to be back to back and just kind of keep it neat like that. Yeah, yeah. That's really helpful. So then if those are the things that we would, those are the things that are omitted from John's gospel, Mm -hmm. maybe it's worth our time to focus on the things that are unique about John's gospel. Yeah, let's let's dig into that. So since we do have John's gospel, what do we get from that that we don't have Mm -hmm. in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Yeah. Well, I think one of the most obvious sections is uh, John kind of double clicks on that time with Jesus and his disciples uh, the night that he was betrayed when they're eating a meal together. And so it's often called the upper room discourse where Jesus from John 13 through John 16 and then his prayer in John 17 um, is really preparing his disciples for his departure, for his his hour, as mm-hmm. John would put it. Um, and that's a big deal, that that, that, that section of scriptures there. Um, we also get a portrayal of Jesus uh, it's it's there's a reason why people go to John as this place that really defends the the divinity of Jesus mm-hmm. that he truly is God, um, and and that's true and right. Um, but John also portrays Jesus as very human, right? The Word became flesh, a very earthy, you know, flesh and blood and bones kind of term. Mm-hmm. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, um, and and so John brings together this this view of Jesus as both truly God and truly man. Yeah. I think it's to a point you made earlier. It's not so much that John is just about Jesus as God or that the other gospels are just about Jesus, the man. Um, One of the ways I've I've read kind of describing the difference to support what we're saying is that we see a lot more emphasis of Jesus teaching us how to relate to God, the father as disciples, as followers of him in Mm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like it's more about Jesus as the true prophet who is leading people uh, into relationship with God as father. Whereas in John, it's a little more on the nose that Jesus is God's son. And how do we relate to Jesus as God's son? Mm -hmm. And so we see throughout John's gospel, a lot more extended personal interactions with Jesus and 
Nicodemus in mm-hmm. chapter three, or the woman at the well in chapter four, or the man born blind mm-hmm. in chapter nine. These kind of it takes up a whole chapter. Jesus interacting with this one person. Mm-hmm. Um, That's good. So you, John, really shows us these individuals and their encounters with Jesus mm-hmm. and what that what comes of that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I notice about John often too is um, if you're a new believer or or if you're discipling a new believer, even a non-believer that's interested in Christianity, one of the things people will often say is kind of the entryway into the Bible is, hey, have them read the Gospel of John. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. John is, there's a simplicity to John. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that if if you take that simplicity to mean simplistic, you're going to really miss how brilliant and deep and profound John's gospel really is. And really what I think it is, is I think John is a master of subtlety. Mm. Uh, He's not going to come forward and say, hey, I'm quoting the Old Testament here. Oh, by the way, I'm referencing this situation. Or hey, just so you know, when I say Lamb of God, I mean Abraham and Isaac and the ram caught in the thicket. He's not going to say any of that stuff. Or hey, maybe I'm referring to the Exodus and and the lamb that was killed so that the doorpost could be covered in its blood. Like, John's not going to come out and say that. He's just going to assume that as you meditate on this text over and over and over again, you'll begin to see the connections, how John's gospel emerges from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard this story, I don't know if it's true or not, but I like it, uh, and that is <laughs> about a monk who, uh, when he became a novitiate, that's a that's a new monk, right? He's kind of a, a junior varsity monk. Um, he took up John's gospel and he said, I'm just going to meditate on John's gospel. That's going to be what I do as a monk. And so 20, 30, 40 years later, he's an old man, a monk all of his life, and he never made it past John chapter 1. Mm. And there's something really profound about that, right? This, this sense that he could not get past uh, the, the almost bottomless depths of John's gospel to where he spent a lifetime meditating on the first chapter. Mm. And, you know, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's overselling the case to some extent. But, yeah. but, but Gregory the Great's got that quote about how Scripture is this, this river in which lambs can wade, uh, but elephants can swim. That, the, that there's this shallowness to where you can enter in and enjoy Scripture's beauty and, and, and wisdom, but it's got a depth to it that an elephant can even swim there. And I think mm. John's Gospel is a great example of that. Yeah, I was, I was struck earlier by how John's writing clearly as a friend of Jesus who lived with him, worked with him, was mm-hmm. around him, knew him. Uh, but he's also writing with such a level of sophistication and mm. connectivity with the Old Testament, to your point, that it just really underscores the inspirational nature of what he's doing. Like, mm. no matter how clever he is as a writer, it's just hard to imagine this person could have written this account mm-hmm. purely using their own human wisdom and insight. Mm. Like, there's mm-hmm. just, there's depths to it that, to your point, it's, I mean, in, if we think of uh, when you're learning Greek, a lot of times you start with John's epistles, which have a very similar style, and mm-hmm. you do them because they're shorter. But it's very it's easy to understand for someone who's just learning a language. Mm-hmm. But then what he's actually wrestling with conceptually, mm-hmm. that's right. You could do what the monk did and spend decades on. Um, and even to that point, I read a read a book recently that was about the doctrine of illumination. Mm. And one of the ways that they got into that was they looked at St. Augustine and Karl Barth's um, way of interpreting John. And almost all of it was focused, not almost all of it, but a lot of it was focused on page after page of how they interacted with John 1. And Barth, as an example, I think, um, 
I can't remember the statistics. I think his lectures on John are like 500 pages long or something, something like that. But almost a third of it is like chapter one. (laughs) It's some ridiculous proportion. We'll, Mm. we'll put it in the show notes because people want to know those numbers. Mm But, um, I was just struck by how much attention they were able to focus on just that first chapter Mm -hmm. and just getting into what is this setting us up for to expect. Yeah. Well, and so for somebody who is maybe known for their, their subtlety, uh, John's actually pretty explicit about why he wrote this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book basically ends towards the end of the you know the twentieth chapter. He has a purpose statement, and John says, and you could look this up in John twenty verses thirty and thirty one. He says, "Now Jesus did many other signs. That's going to be a really important word. Mm-hmm. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, in other words, these signs are written so that you may believe." What are you supposed to believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and as a result of that, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John gets really clear about what he's about. He's about Jesus. He's about showing Jesus as who he really is, the Christ, the Son of God, so that you can find him to be credible. And as a credible picture of Jesus, John's gospel engenders faith. It actually creates faith in our hearts. Another reason why to turn a non-believer or a new believer to John's gospel is not a mistake, uh, because this gospel is written that we might believe and, and it to, to see Jesus' signs. So one of the things I think is profound, we, we talked about John chapter 1, which is often called the prologue, the first 18 verses of John. Mm-hmm. Um, and John kind of gives this sweeping, grand, cosmic introduction about the Word who is with God, but was God, and then that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, and His glory surpassed even the glory of Moses, who is pretty glorious, and uh, and how God is hidden and invisible and unknown by people, but but God, the only God at his side, can make him known. And, and so there's this beautiful picture of what, what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he did in, in the first 18 verses. But interestingly, after those first 18 verses, there are seven names given in John chapter 1 for Jesus. There's the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Israel, and Son of Man. So John's not messing around when he says, I'm writing this so that you may have life in his name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to start off, I'm going to give you a lot of names for Jesus. Yeah. And there's something really profound about that, that you could, you could unpack each of those names and see that John is giving us a, a Christology, to use the fancy term for the study of Christ. He's giving us a Christology that's so rooted in Israel and Israel's scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how you can know who this Jesus really is. Yeah. Well, it's, that's also starting us off. Let's, we'll, we'll take a little digression and talk about some structural markers. Of So you've got that group of seven in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. There's two other groups of seven that are kind of woven into the fabric of the gospel. One is his Jesus makes seven I am. He, he makes more than seven I am statements, mm-hmm. but he has seven I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the good shepherd. I mm-hmm. am the sheep's gate. I am the bread of life. So that he's got seven of those. Jesus also makes some I am statements where he says, the, the one that I always remember uh, is in John eight fifty eight when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Mm. And just the implications of what does it mean for a Jewish man in AD 30 something mm-hmm. to say, before Abraham existed, I currently exist. Which, is Jesus just really bad at grammar? Because it feels proper grammar would be before Abraham was, I was. 
Yes. So tell us about that. What's going on there? Yeah. So it, he's he's very clearly, and for people who maybe question, do the gospel writers ever just come out and say Jesus is God? John is one of the more overt ones by pulling this I am language of I am who I am is the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Yahweh is the way we bring it into English. Mm -hmm. And so for Jesus to be using that in that kind of bald form right there before Abraham was, I am, Mm -hmm. not I am this or I am that, but just I am. That's right. He's using God's covenant name for himself. And you clearly can see that the Jewish leaders interpreted that as blasphemy in the Mm -hmm. moment. They pick up stones to stone him. Like They cannot tolerate that level of a man identifying himself with God. Yeah. Hey, you remember that story in Exodus 3 when, you know, the Lord Almighty spoke to Moses out of a burning bush? Yeah, that was me. That's basically what he's saying there. Yeah. (laughs) And they're just like, "Uh, no, that's not, we're not for that. And as a side note, we actually know from... um, extra biblical sources outside the Bible, Jewish sources that a reason and really the main reason the Jewish leaders wanted him crucified was because of his blasphemy. Mm. They just were not tolerating Mm -hmm. his clear identification with God. And yet that becomes the foundation of this movement Mm -hmm. of Jesus followers in the rest of the new Testament is that somehow Jesus is God and Jesus also has a father and they're two, but they're one. And how mm. do we figure this out? And just reflecting on that gives us a lot of the rest of our New Testament writings. But John gives us a lot to work with through those I am statements. Um, the other thing was the signs. That's right. We're gonna, we were going to talk yeah. about those as well. Yeah, well, and to your point, um, the there's seven signs, right? Mm. And in the purpose statement that I read, now Jesus did many other signs, mm-hmm. but these are written. So if you read the purpose statement, it should go have you go back throughout the book and look for signs that were written by John that have the purpose of again creating faith in the in those who read and hear about these signs. So these signs, tell us about them. Well, so we've got in a story that's unique to John, the first sign is when he turns the water into wine, mm-hmm. uh, and it's overtly called a sign. Is that right? I think mm-hmm. I remember that right. Um, I think there's only two, the, that one and then the one where he cleanses the temple or um, something like that, where those are the only two that John explicitly says, hey, this was the first sign, this was the second sign, and then he kind of leaves you on your own to figure out the other, the right. other five. Yeah, you, so you're figuring out the other five. And that the, the way the um, commentators have divided John's book up is that the first 12 chapters are really focused on, they call it the book of signs, where it's, it's mm. very overtly... What are the signs that Jesus is doing that uh, show that he is who he says he is? He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Uses that language from Daniel 7, gets applied to Jesus. Um, do you, I don't have the list of signs handy, and I, to my shame, do not have them memorized right off the top of my head. No, you're good. I, well, I just realized it was the healing of the official son. That was the second, the second sign, sign that John names. So you've got turning water into wine. Um, the cleansing of the temple here on this list says that that's one of the signs. Um, healing the, the, the nobleman's son, healing the lame man, feeding the multitude, healing the blind man, and raising Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would argue, and there, there is disagreement about this, yeah. that maybe Jesus' death and resurrection is the final sign. Yes. Um, and, and so, to me, maybe there's seven signs, and then that's this eighth one. 
because remember the word the number seven comes from genesis one Mm -hmm. uh this the number for completion god created all things in six days and then rested completed his work on the seventh Mm -hmm. and so seven is a whole number in that sense um but jesus is doing something new this is this is not the first creation. This is a, a new creation. So I wouldn't yeah. even be surprised if there really are seven signs and then death and resurrection is kind of this eighth new creation sign. Right. That so, happens on the first day of the week, starting a new... That's right. A new week. So just further kind of illustrating the way it's connected to Genesis. Yeah, exactly. So John is a... I mean, this is a man who is deeply saturated with the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. And so he's just... I mean, constantly riffing on these things um, and, and giving us pictures of who Jesus is in light of the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, that's good. Well, what else do we kind of see um, thematically that we may want to touch on mm-hmm. for listeners to kind of keep track of what's going on in John? Yeah. Well, part of me wants to challenge people. When I was in a, um, when I was younger, my dentist would have those uh, magazines in his office where you could kind of flip through a page and had like this really this picture with a bunch of stuff going on on it, but you had like particular items that you had to locate and like circle. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I almost want to challenge people to read John's gospel that way and look for words like the hour because mm-hmm. uh, that's a theme in John's gospel, the hour. And Jesus says uh, in John 2, his first sign, Mary, his mother, comes to him and is like, hey, Jesus, uh, could you, you know, do something about the fact that they just ran out of wine? And, and he says, hey, my hour is not yet. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Well, if you if you if you look for hour, I would encourage you like circle the word hour whenever it shows up in your Bible and reflect on those things uh, throughout the Gospel of John. The other one is, um, as we've said, these signs. If you can, if you can, you could Google it. You could circle them when you when you get to them. And the I am statements. Mm-hmm. Um, those are worthwhile themes and threads that run throughout yeah. uh, John's Gospel. Yeah, we've got those. I'm I'm thinking. Uh, <clears throat> To the point we made earlier, you could look at how many extended interactions he has with mm-hmm. individuals. So, I mean, he's got he's got the longer interaction with Nathaniel in chapter one. He's got the mm-hmm. interaction with Nicodemus. He's got the interaction with the woman at the well. He's mm-hmm. got the interaction with uh, <clears throat> the man born blind. But just I'm I'm trying to do the math off the top of my head. I'm like, maybe it's worth counting those. Maybe there's yeah, seven sure. of those as well, depending on how <laughs> you slice it. And if there's not, it. we could just you know fit that into we a could, seven yeah, category. We just could to make, make it work. <laughs> Um, one That's of the other not things good that, Bible study, by the way, <laughs> no, 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 numer- there's a difference between noticing pat for listeners, uh, noticing patterns and maybe what we'd call numerology, where we're trying to force things to fit certain numerical schemes and then deriving significance from that. Mm. Uh, we're just merely noting that there's clearly groups of seven kind of scattered throughout, but that's not the only significant number. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, I, the other thing that uh, kind of struck me as I was doing some some reading for this is that we get very obvious sermons in Matthew. There's five key sermons in Matthew that kind of structure the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we get extended discourses in John, but they're a little more rambly and open-ended, mm. not in a bad way. But I think maybe what we're getting in John is this is a little better approximation for what it was probably like to just hang out with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like it's informal. Like we get the the upper room discourse is the famous one from mm-hmm. John 13 to 17, where he's with his disciples and it's four chapters long, which makes it it's longer than the Sermon on the Mount, mm. which is maybe his most famous sermon. But it's also Jesus just talking informally with just his disciples. 
Um, it's also probably one of the ways we know for sure as much as we can be certain that John is the beloved disciple is that whoever wrote this book probably had to be present Mm -hmm. for that moment. Um, it's not something you could probably have relayed secondhand after the fact. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's just, it's such a rich section to start off the book. of. So we mentioned earlier one through 12 in John is a lot of times called the book of signs. Mm -hmm. And then chapter 13 through the end is sometimes called the book of glory because we see, Jesus talking about what's about to happen, talking about his glory, his future death, resurrection, glorification. Um, there's a sense in which I mentioned earlier in the quote, we don't have the story of the transfiguration mm-hmm. in John's gospel because the gospel as a whole has this kind of transfiguring a focal point to it. I mean, maybe wow. we want to say of, you know, from start to finish, Jesus is being transfigured into this glorious son mm-hmm. of God. Uh, he starts off as just, you know, a Jewish peasant who can do magic tricks at a wedding. And then <laughs> by the end of it, yeah, that, um, by the end of it, he's still fully man, but mm-hmm. he's now been transfigured through his death and resurrection. And mm-hmm. it's interesting, the stories we get at the back end of John, as opposed to, you know, with Matthew, we really don't get much. Mark, mm-hmm. you don't really get anything. Luke, you get the road to Emmaus. And some stuff there. But with John, we have this extended interaction with Peter and mm-hmm. with, we see Peter actually getting forgiven mm-hmm. for his, um, his denial. And we yeah. see kind of Jesus gives us some clues about resurrection bodies. He's having breakfast with his disciples. He's, mm. you know, visibly recognizable to mm-hmm. some extent. Um, Which to your point, John chapters 20 and 21 are, those two chapters are just profound because of the resurrection appearances and, and mm-hmm. how unique those two chapters are. Um, and, and I just want to illustrate for a moment, because I've said John is this master of subtlety and uh, deeply immersed in the Hebrew scriptures. And, um, and, and that I, one of my goals for these CBR podcasts is people would take up the Bible as meditation literature, mm-hmm. that they would take John 20 and 21 and just read them maybe a dozen or 15 or 20 or 30 times yeah. uh, and, and begin to notice what's going on and some of the connections there. So just two examples of that. In John 19, uh, where Jesus is, is crucified and he's buried, in verse 41, it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Now, as, as good readers of Scripture, when you hear a word like garden, that should cue your mind to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> there's another really important garden in the Bible. Uh, it's in chapters 1 and 2 called the Garden of Eden, right? Yeah. Um, and so where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb had, in which no one had yet been laid. And so Jesus is buried in a tomb in a garden. And then fast forward to the next chapter, John chapter 20, Jesus is resurrected. And uh, I believe it's Mary is, is looking for him in the garden, looking mm-hmm. for him where the tomb is. And Jesus is there, but she can't really recognize him. And so in John chapter 20, verse 15, it says, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now listen to this. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. So here's something that's going on in John. In John 19, Jesus' tomb is in a garden and he's laid there. In John 20, Mary mistakes him for being the gardener of that garden. Mm -hmm. 
when we think about Jesus as the new Adam in the new Eden, uh, this is a picture of that. Yeah. We've got Adam is this gardener, or Jesus is mistaken as a gardener. Who's the first gardener? Mm-hmm. Adam. He was supposed to work and to keep this garden God gave to him. Yeah. Um, and so I just love the, the subtlety of that. John's not going to come straight out like Paul and say, hey, Christ is the new Adam. Paul right. does that in Romans chapter 5. John is going to do it in a story, and he's going to slip words in there that are supposed to be cues, uh, maybe even triggers to remind you of different points in scripture, like the word garden and gardener. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great example of, of what people can be looking for as they're reading John, because that that's clearly the fruit of meditating on that section, mm-hmm. uh, because it requires you to think about where else a garden shows up in scripture. Mm-hmm. And, the principle we've got there is anytime you have a word that's loaded like that, you should be thinking about, I mean, they seem like mundane words, trees, gardens, rivers, boats, like, but then you're like, well, where's a boat elsewhere in scripture? Mm -hmm. Where's a river elsewhere in scripture? Um, But then it's forcing you to do a little work on your own of what in Genesis two, Adam's to my knowledge, never called a gardener, Mm. but if he's being placed in a garden, to and told and to cultivate it, yeah. <laughs> he's very clearly a gardener. Uh-huh. So the first man is a gardener. The first new man is being confused as a gardener. Mm-hmm. So then there's some sort of connection there. But is you have to do the meditative work to get there because John's not going to spell it out for you in detail. That's right. He's just going to kind of put some pieces there and then you need to assemble the puzzle. Yeah, exactly. And another example of that is, um, as you mentioned already, Peter's denial and restoration in John's gospel. So... Peter's denial actually shows up in all four Gospels, which is a, you know, one of the kind of apologetics, if you will, um, to say that the Bible is probably authentic. And this is why that is. Peter is well attested to be a pillar, Paul calls, it, or Paul calls him in Galatians, a pillar in the early church. Peter had a lot of authority. He had a lot of influence in the early church. As these texts were being written, Peter could have easily said, hey, could we get the scissors out and go Thomas Jefferson on that section where I deny yeah. Jesus? This is a bad look for me. <laughs> totally. Like... I'm the first pope. I don't think this is a good idea. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't. Why? Because he cares about the authenticity of the record. Mm-hmm. But all four gospel accounts have Peter's denial. And yet, as we started, John has a unique a unique thing. And, it, and it's, again, unless you meditate on the text, you're going to miss this. Uh, and, and I've got to be honest, uh, a very insightful commentator pointed this out to me. So in John 18, uh, this is Peter's denial. It says, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now, one of the things a key to reading the Bible is that the, the way that Hebrew scriptures were written and the way that ancient texts were written is you don't have enough paper. We don't have a printing press. We don't have, you know, paper's not, not easy. It's not cheap. Mm-hmm. Every word matters. And so if a word shows up, you, you, you want to pay attention to it. John's the only one that points out that it's a charcoal fire. And you're like, okay, charcoal? I, that's not like garden. I don't know of anywhere mm-hmm. charcoal shows up in the Bible. Well, that's in John 18. Read a couple chapters later, you get to John 21, verse 9, and Jesus is on the shore, and Peter and John, and they're out fishing in the boat, right? And they see Jesus. And, and what is Jesus doing? Well, when they got to land, this is John 21, 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. So what's I, what I think is amazing here is in John 18, Je- Peter 
he denies Jesus around a charcoal fire. Mm-hmm. In John 21, right before Jesus restores Peter, Jesus is cooking fish on a charcoal fire. The phrase charcoal fire doesn't show up anywhere else in the whole Bible. This is a significant thing John's doing here. Yeah. He's the only author that mentions, mentions a charcoal fire. He's trying to draw a connection between, hey, the very place Peter denied Jesus is the very place Jesus is going to restore Peter. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful literary artfulness that only meditating on these texts is really going to draw out. Yeah, that's that's so good. And it just it further underscores the need for attentiveness as we're working through John's gospel, which we're going to be spending quite a while in, in the days and weeks ahead. That's right. So, well, this has been great, Ben. I'm, I'm glad we were able to sit down and chat through some things. Any final, that's, that's a great note to end on, but any final, final. Yeah. Well, let's just conclude where John does. He says, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And I read that last sentence of this book and I just think, man, I wish you would have tried. Yeah, <laughs> I would have like, loved, <laughs> like read a few more books. You wrote like a, a few pages. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I just love that. He's, he's a worshiper of Jesus. He's like, Jesus did more than the entire world could contain in books if we really wrote those down. But I selected these things because I want you to believe in him and mm-hmm. have life in his name. Yeah, it's a good place to end. So thanks for your time today, Ben. It was great talking about John with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Nate. Yeah.